0: We are discussing the 12th principle of the 13 principles of faith, and this is the principle about Messiah and the Messianic era, and this is going to be our sixth installment in the 12th principle, and specifically we're trying to understand the mechanisms of Messiah. We talk about Messiah and what happens and what changes, and the changes are tectonic, They're seismic. The whole world changes. Everyone changes their priorities. Everyone changes their values. Everyone becomes elevated. The pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of God cover the land as water covers the seabed. And the question we posed was, how does this all happen? What are the themes that trigger the incredible dramatic changes that occurred during the Messianic era? And that question we've discovered, it's more easily asked than answered. And the reason is because we don't know much about Messiah. We don't know how the redemption will unfold. We don't know what it will look like. Jacob, on his deathbed, he wanted to reveal it to us, but he was unable to. And therefore, there's so much that is unclear, that is confusing to us that is opaque about Messiah, and that complicates our efforts to understand how exactly Messiah results in this dramatic change. That said, if we put together what we do in fact know about Messiah, and we understand whatever we can understand, that has given us some insights into the transformation of Messiah. So we spoke about the concept of the elimination, to some degree, of the evil inclination. During Messiah, the Almighty will circumcise our hearts. He will remove the blockages that are inhibiting our hearts from connecting to our source. And that explains a lot of the change. You know, if you don't have a Yetzirah, you don't have an evil inclination. Well, what do you have? All you have is a soul. It's uninhibited. And then the pursuit of God and the pursuit of wisdom, that's going to be very natural. That's almost the default state of man of mankind, and it's just temporarily disrupted in this world with the Yetzirah. Well, you remove the Yetzirah and a very different world emerges. And that's part of the story of the changes of Messiah. We also spoke about the persona of Messiah. There's going to be an individual, a towering figure with qualities akin to Abraham, to Adam before his sin, to Moshe, to David, but even greater than all of them, depending on what dimension we're talking about, a giant that the whole world will admire and look up to. And everyone will melt before him. And everyone will be elevated from their encounter with him. And that will provide the grand change of Messiah. Today, I want to focus on another element of Messiah, namely the miracles of Messiah. This subject is going to be pertinent to Messiah in general, but also to the question of how this dramatic change of Messiah will unfold. Now, again, I have to always remind you, although we don't get precise details about Messiah, we do get some clues. And these clues will help us understand Messiah in general, and specifically, They're going to help us understand how the transformations of Messiah will come about. What are the mechanisms of Messiah? Now, I want to introduce this subject in the following way. Messiah is part of a pattern, part of a a theme, a system of Jewish history. And this system is called Galus and Geula, Exile and Redemption. Prior to Messiah, we are told, our nation will endure four exiles. Number one, Babylon. The Babylonians come, they destroy the first temple, and for 70 years, our nation is under the thumb of the Babylonians. That's exile number one. Exile number two is Persia and Media. That's the Perm story, as we know. And for 52 years, we were under the thumb of the Persians and the Medes. And that's exile number two. And then there are the Greeks. And that's the Hanukkah story. And for 180 years, we were subjugated to the Greeks. And finally, we have the fourth and current ongoing exile of Edom, of Asav, alternatively called Rome, And that began with the destruction of the Second Temple, and that is still ongoing. And the end cap of that, the redemption of that, is what we call Messiah. But this is a pattern, this is a format throughout Jewish history. Now, the Midrash reveals to us that this pattern, these systems of of redemption following exile, it is already established. At the very beginning of creation, the very first chapter of the Torah, the second verse of the Torah, it talks about the land was empty and and barren, and there was darkness upon the depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering upon the water, says the Midrash, the land was empty, that refers to the exile of, of Babylon, and it was barren, that refers to the exile of Persian media. And there was darkness. Well, that refers to the exile that we suffered at the hands of the Greeks on the face of the depths. That refers to the final exile, the exile at the hands of Edom, at the hands of the wicked kingdom. And the spirit of God was hovering upon the water. That's the spirit of Messiah. Similarly, Chapter 15 of Genesis, this is in a very interesting part of Abraham's story known as the Covenant of the Parts. In this covenant, God foretells about the experience that the Jewish people are going to endure at the hands of the Egyptians. You should surely know that your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign land. They'll be enslaved. They'll be tormented for 400 years. And then they leave with great wealth, etc. But the verse tells us, chapter 15, verse 12, there was a great dread of, of darkness that fell upon Abraham. And even though Abraham is being told about the experience of his descendants at the hands of the Egyptians, the Midrash tells us that these words, a great dread, darkness fell upon him, in Hebrew, these refer to the four exiles. That we mentioned, Persia, Persian media, Babylon, Greece, and Edom. Another Midrash, and this is just an example, but this pattern again appears many places in Jewish literature and philosophy. The Midrash tells us that when Jacob had his dream with the ladder, and the angels of God were going up the ladder and descending down its rungs. Says the midrash, what are these angels? These angels were the angels of our foes. And Jacob saw the angel of Babylon going up 70 rungs and then plummeting downward. He understood. We we will be subject to the Babylonians for 70 years. And then he saw the angel of the Persian and Media empires and they went up 52 rungs and then they came down. And Greece went up 180 runs and came down. And then he saw the final angel, the angel that corresponds to the final exile, the angel that corresponds to Edom, which we are told is an amalgamation of all these forces. And it goes up, and it goes up, and it goes up, and it does not seem to go down. And Jacob was worried, what's going to be? Will this exile ever end? And God said, don't worry about it. That too will eventually end. When we talk about Messiah, we have to understand that it's part of a bigger pattern and picture throughout our history. We have exile. We have subjugation. Our nation is subject to the domination of foreign powers. And each one of these are ended with redemption. Each of these forces, of these foes, Present a different challenge. Each one of these overlords are different. In Babylon, of course, they destroyed the temple and they sent the Jews from the land to exile in Babylon. And in Persia, the Jewish people had to deal with the genocidal designs of Haman, and that was resolved with the perm miracle. And in Greece or subject to the Greeks, the Jewish people were in the land, but they were spiritually subjugated to the Greek way of life to Hellenism. And then we have Edom. We have Asaph. We have Rome, as we're told in the literature. And that's just this total force of darkness, which serves as an amalgamation of all the other three empires. This is the most virulent and intense and longest of exiles. And the end cap of this, The redemption of this, the final redemption, that is what we call Messiah. And the final battle will be Messiah versus Asaph. This is hinted to in many places in our nation's story. When Jacob was born, chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 26, he's born And his hand is clutching the heel of Esav. And Rashi says this is symbolic of the conflict between these two empires, the Jewish people and our foe, Edom, Esav. And before Esav is allowed to win, Jacob is going to grab his heel, his ankle, and take it away. And of course, Jacob usurps the blessings and has to flee and spent 20 years with Laban. And then they reunite. And then after they reunite, and Jacob bows seven times before him. And Esav is, is mollified. And then he proposes to live together. Why do we move in together? And Jacob manages to skillfully navigate out of that potential crisis. And he says, no, you, you go. You go back to your house in Mount Seir. Go back to Adom. I'll eventually get there. Give me some time. I'll eventually get there. We'll eventually reunite. And Rashi Deir tells us that, yes, Jacob never showed up to Esau again. But they will, in fact, have a final showdown. And when is that? That is in the days of Messiah. And he quotes a verse in the book of Ovadia, the saviors will ascend to Mount Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Asaph. Jacob's life is one that symbolizes the story of the Jewish people. It's one of exile with redemption, further exile and further redemption. And the very end of Jacob's story after he passed in Egypt. And he's brought back in the funeral cavalcade to the land, to the cave of the patriarchs. The Midrash tells us, the Talmud talks about this, that Asav tried to stop the interment of Jacob. And he claimed that burial spot for himself. And we know the story. Esav, was decapitated by Jacob's grandson, Hushim, the son of Dan, Hushim ben Dan. Hushim, we're told, was deaf. And the commentaries point out that Hushim, if you rearrange those letters, Ches, Shin, Yud, Mem, you can spell Mem, Shin, Yud, Ches, you could spell Messiah. Messiah, we're told, will come from David, from the tribe of Judah. But that's from his father's side. From his mother's side, he will come from Dan, from Hushem. And thus, this episode, this final encounter, if you will, on the individual lives of Jacob and Esav is symbolic of Messiah. Esav is the last force trying to stop the culmination of this great nation, And the tip of the spear of Messiah will be the tribe of Dan, will be the force of Hushim. It's also interesting, this we'll talk more about in the future, the commentaries note that the gematria of the word Messiah is the same gematria as the word Nachash, meaning serpent. In Jacob's blessings to his sons, the son that he compares to a snake to a serpent is Dan. So there's something about Messiah that somehow resembles a snake, and that is associated with the tribe of Dan. We'll talk more about that, please God, in the future. So we know the story of Jacob is symbolic of the story of the Jewish people. And the story of the Jewish people will eventually play out along this format following this template. Now, there's another point here. We talk about the four exiles. There's four exiles. And the context of Messiah is redemption from the fourth and final exile, from Adam, from Esauv. But I mentioned four. What are the four? You have Babylon, you have Persia slash Media, you have the Greeks, and you have Edom, you have Asav. There is one apparent exile that is omitted, and that, of course, is the first of the exiles. The Jewish people go to Egypt, and they spend 430 years or 400 years or 210 years, depends how you count. And then they have the exodus. And that too is the format of of exile and redemption. Yet somehow, in all the literature, they talk about the four exiles, and somehow Egypt is not featured. Evidently, there's something different about Egypt than there is about the other four. And this is the point that I want to convey in this part of our survey of our study of Messiah. Our saints tell us, and there are many sources to this effect, as we shall see, Egypt is the alpha exile. It is the root of all exiles. The root of all exiles is the story of the Jewish people in Egypt, and the root of all redemption is the exodus. And thus... If we want to know what Messiah will look like, we know that Messiah will be an example of this redemption. It's going to mirror, to some degree or another, it's going to mirror the Exodus. Now, there are explicit verses in Scripture to this effect. The verse tells us in the book of Micah, Micah, chapter 7, verse 15, just as was true in the days of your exodus from Egypt, so too I will show you in the future great wonders. Just as the exodus happened, the future wonders, the future redemptions will happen in that same format. The Talmud in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 11a, In the month of Nisan, we were redeemed. The Exodus happened in the month of Nisan. In Nisan, in the future they will be redeemed again in the month of Nisan. Again, this pattern holds true that the Exodus created a format of redemption and Messiah will follow this format. Some more Kabbalistic sources say that there's only one day in the whole year the Messiah could come, and that's Pesach. Because it's got a mirror, it's got to match the Exodus. And for our purposes, the sages say very explicitly that just as there were miracles, there were wonders, there were great signs in the Exodus the future exodus, the future redemption, the Messiah, all those signs and all those wonders and all those miracles will be revisited, will be reenacted. Everything that I did for the Jews in Egypt, he will do for the Jews in the Messiah. And by the way, this is obvious. If you look at the Seder, for example, that we celebrate on Pesach, it's a dress rehearsal for Messiah. How do we end off every Pesach night next year in Jerusalem? We're trying to channel the experience of the first Exodus to the final one. The Exodus, it's not counted as one of the four exiles and the four redemptions, because this is the exile and the redemption and the template for all future redemptions as well. When Abraham was foretold about the enslavement that his descendants will experience in Egypt, the verse says, And also the nation that enslaves the Jewish people, I will judge, and then they will leave with great wealth. The Midrash notes that there's an extra letter in that verse. This is fifteen fourteen of Genesis. Vigam, and also. Could have simply said, Gam, also. Why is it, and also, says the Midrash? Gam, who rhyme Had it just said Gam, also, it would have referred to only Egypt. Vigam, and also the Rabos Arbergolios, that's coming to include all the four exiles. The miracles, the format, the suffering, the subjugation, followed by redemption of Egypt and everything that it includes, they will resurface in the times of Messiah. Moreover, Demetrius tells us that the miracles of Messiah will be in the same temple, in the same format, the same prototype, so to speak, following the prototype of Egypt, but they will be even greater. Demeter points out that at the song of the sea, the verse says, O God does wonder. It's in a singular format. But in the aforementioned verse in the book of Micah, it says, Just as the days of the Exodus from Egypt, I will show you wonders. In Egypt, there was a wonder. With the Messiah, there will be wonders. The miracles of Egypt are great, are transformative. We're so excited about them. We talk about them endlessly for the last... 3,300 years, but the miracles of Messiah will be even greater. Egypt is just a wonder. Messiah is wonders. The Midrash elsewhere tells us that the Exodus, while it is a template for Messiah, Messiah will be even greater. In Egypt, the Almighty sent an angel to go punish the Egyptians. With other exiles, there were intermediaries, Mordecai and Esther, Matisseau and his children, an angel that went and struck the Assyrian camp. But in the future, with Messiah, it will be the handiwork of God himself. And even though, of course, we do know that there were elements of the exodus that were done by God himself, the Midrash here is highlighting that there will be much greater miracles, much more intense miracles in the Exodus than were present in all the other redemptions. So much so there's even a debate in the Talmud whether or not once Messiah arrives, will we even make a big deal about the Exodus? The verse in Jeremiah 16.14 tells us that in the future, we won't even talk so much about the Exodus From Egypt. And we're almost going to forget the Exodus because it will be so outshined by the miracles of the redemption of Messiah. Now, the Talmud actually says that we will, in fact, mention the Exodus in the times of Messiah, but it won't be as impressive, as noteworthy as the miracles of Messiah itself. So, this is an incredible principle. We don't know much about Messiah. It's clear. Jacob wanted revealed to us and he wasn't allowed to. And you open up the Rambam and he says again and again, we don't really know how it's actually, it's all going to play out. But here's what we do know. The Exodus is a blueprint. That's the prototype. And the miracles of the Exodus will be reenacted for Messiah on a much grander scale. Now, it is also interesting that it's not just the Exodus that's the model for future redemptions. The Exodus itself was modeled after previous redemptions. Everything that happened to the individuals in the book of Genesis, the forefathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob were told... That's a microcosm of what's going to happen to their descendants. And the story of Jacob, the individual, going to the house of Laban, if you think about it, it's a a perfect parallel to the Jewish people going to Egypt. Our natural home is in the land, and Jacob has to go to Laban, because otherwise he'll die if he stays in Israel. Asaph's going to kill him. The Jewish people, they go down to Egypt. Why? Because there was a famine. Otherwise, they'll die. They're forced into exile. And in both places, they're forced to work. Jacob has to work for his father-in-law. The Jewish people are enslaved and subjugated to the Egyptians. And there's trickery, we're told, in both instances. Laban swaps his daughters. And Pharaoh uses deception enslave the Jews. And when they leave, both of them leave with great wealth. And when they leave, they're both pursued by their foe. Seven days after Jacob escapes, Laban chases him down and they have a showdown. Seven days after the Jewish people escape from Egypt, Pharaoh chases them down and they have a showdown. And in both cases, the showdown was resolved by divine intervention. And in both cases, There was a promise not to go back. Jacob and Laban, they make a pile of stones as a testimony. This is the point of demarcation. I won't cross and head back, and you won't cross this DMZ. Before the splitting of the sea, God comforts Moshe, and Moshe comforts the Jewish people. Don't worry about the Egyptians. This is the last you're going to see of them. And ever since the Exodus, we are banned from returning to Egypt. And what happens afterwards? After Jacob finally frees himself from Laban, he has to go encounter Asaph, Edom. And the Jewish people, right after they leave Pharaoh, they have to encounter also Asaph, also Edom, Amalek. So it's interesting. We've we seen an example of this already play out. Jacob, the individual, he lives through a format of exile and redemption, and that gets played out on a bigger scale with his descendants in Egypt, the family of Jacob, a forefather, his storyline with Laban, the exile and the exodus that mirrors the story of the nation. And that template will be followed going forward. And therefore, when we want to understand more about Messiah, we can look at the model, at the, at the prototype, at the archetypal example of redemption. Again, the verse in Micah, "He made tzehes as was true with the days of your exodus from Egypt. Ere in the flows, I will show you miracles, wonders in the future. And thus, we're trying to understand Messiah, and the best place to find clues for how Messiah will unfold, and what are the tremendous miracles that will be present at that time, the way to do that is to revisit the Exodus story. We'll start with maybe a general idea, a really interesting idea, and then we'll go chronologically throughout the story and show how there are going to be parallels between the Exodus and Messiah. If you read the book of Exodus, you will invariably ask the following question. The Jewish people could have left a lot earlier. The story of the Exodus appears to be belabored. God hardens Pharaoh's heart again and again and again. God's intervening in Pharaoh's free will in order to elongate the experience of the Jewish people in Egypt. And the question you may may wonder, you may ask is, if Pharaoh wants to let the Jewish people go, let's get out of there. Why are we prolonging the Jewish people's experience in exile? Let them leave, and let's finish this chapter. So one of the more creative answers to this question, it is the principle that we talked about. The Exodus is the prototype. And what miracles will be present in the times of Messiah? The same miracles that were present at the Exodus. And therefore, even though you don't need a given miracle for the Exodus itself, you may need that miracle for a future exodus, for a future redemption. And therefore, the Almighty stuffed in to the exodus as many different and varied miracles as possible. Again, they're not needed for the exodus itself. We don't need them to get out of Egypt, but we may in fact need them for the future redemption that we are anticipating. So that's a general idea that will explain the exodus a bit. In addition, the Rambam writes an incredible letter to the Jewish communities of Yemen. This letter has grand historical importance. The Jewish people of Yemen were at a very low point, and they had a false messiah that was wreaking havoc amongst the Yemenite communities. And there was also the risk of the, of the Muslims who were controlling Yemen at the time. And Rambam wrote an incredible letter that transformed Yemenite Jewry. Even until today, Yemenite Jewry, they follow the halachic rulings of Rambam 100% because he saved Yemenite Jewry with this letter. This letter is a sweeping letter on a lot of the subjects that we're going to talk about. But he addresses in a few different ways this concept, the parallels between the Exodus and Messiah. And he says that the Exodus, there was a specific time that it arrived. It arrived in a surprising fashion. When Moshe emerged, it was at a time where everyone had concluded that redemption is no longer possible. Specifically, when Egypt was at their high point and the Jewish people were at their absolute nadir, and everyone had given up on redemption ever changing the situation, that is when. The time was ripe for redemption. Egypt, the exodus, was a surprise. It was unexpected. It violated the circumstances on the ground. Says Rambam, this is part of the patterns of redemption. When you're least expecting it, that's when it springs forth. And that happened later on in the... Times of Nebuchadnezzar, when the nation was in the dumps and the oppressor seemed invincible and everyone had given up. Moshe, of course, had his initial foray into Pharaoh's palace and the situation was exacerbated. Things got worse instead of better. The enslavement intensified. And then when he comes to the Jewish people again, they can't even hear him because they're so exasperated. They had absolutely no one to rely on, not even Moshe. At that point, when everyone had given up, that's when the ground was ripe. Similarly, says Rambam, this pattern will hold true with Messiah. When it seems so improbable and so infeasible For the redemption to happen, that's when Messiah comes. Messiah is unexpected. The leader of the Messianic transformation will resemble Moshe. Just as Moshe shows up out of nowhere. Moshe had spent his whole formative years away from his brethren. He's in Midian. Everyone forgot about Moshe. He's been gone for decades upon decades. He was totally unknown to his people. Sources tell us Messiah too will be unknown, won't be a household name. Moreover, the sources tell us, this is not in the Ramah, it's elsewhere, Moshe himself didn't believe in his own ability to save the Jewish people. Messiah as well, won't believe, won't know, will be unknown to others and unknown to himself that he's going to save Jewish people. Moreover, just as was true with the Exodus, that it began with a false start. Moshe shows up, oh, redemption's here. But things got worse, not better. The subjugation, the enslavement, the exile intensified that pattern will hold true a Messiah as well. Messiah will appear, and everyone's hopes will be raised. And then those hopes will be dashed, and he'll disappear. And the nation will be left in despair, and then Messiah will reappear. This idea is told us in the Rabbeinu Bachai to Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. And he says a great line. This redemption, i.e. Messiah, will be in the future mirrored to the redemption from Egypt in many ways. The sources tell us in Egypt there were plagues. There will be plagues as well with Messiah. If there was blood in Egypt, there will be blood with Messiah. Again, this is, this is the blueprint. How do Exodus's How do they work? How will Messiah work? It's going to follow this blueprint, this pattern of the Alpha Exile and the Alpha Exodus. And all of the other four redemptions follow this pattern. We talk about how with Messiah, the whole world is going to be changed. Everyone's going to become a believer. We see an example of that in the Exodus. The emphasis of the plagues, at least part of the emphasis is, that Pharaoh will know, that Egypt will know, that Egypt will accept the Almighty's dominion. Just as with the Exodus, the nations were impacted, and the the nations were transformed, so too, Messiah will move the entire world. Now, there's another principle. This one's a bit surprising and even scary, and perhaps one that can serve as a cautionary tale. During the plague of darkness, the ninth of ten plagues, Rashi tells us that many Jews died. There were Jews who did not want to leave. They had resisted redemption. They had resisted the Exodus. Notwithstanding the fact that the Jewish people were marginalized and enslaved and tormented and persecuted in all kinds of ways, there was a portion of them that did not want to leave. How many people was that? So Rashi, a little bit later on, tells us, this is in Exodus chapter 14, only a fifth Of the Jewish people actually made it out of Egypt. 80% didn't want to leave. There's something about redemption that's a bit frightening, that's destabilizing, that knocks people out of their rhythm, that disrupts people's equilibrium. And four out of the five Israelites died. They were unwilling to be redeemed. And of course, to us, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to be enslaved if you could go free? So A, it shows how entrenched people can get, even in bad situations. B, it also tells us that the Exodus, and subsequently the Messiah as well, will be demanding. It's going to demand people to change. And change is always very hard. But here's the scary thought. It's possible that when Messiah comes, a portion, maybe even 80%, won't make the cut. It's possible if this pattern holds, again, not every thing that happens in the, in the excess will exactly happen in Messiah. And this one we're told specifically, there is a chance that up to 80% won't make it, won't be privy to this final redemption. 80% of the Jews in Egypt didn't want to leave. They wanted to remain there. How many people do we know that will be resistant to Messiah as well? And this again reveals to us, you're going to have to want it. You're going to have to opt in. You're going to have to be willing to change the home that you're comfortable in, the lifestyle perhaps that you have grown accustomed to. Redemption demands change. And change from comfort is always difficult. Even the Jewish people who were in a very objectively miserable situation didn't want to leave, many of them. People are comfortable with the devil you know, as they say. People don't want the vulnerability, the instability, the lack of security of change. Now, the truth is, this 80-20 rule, it's not a fait accompli. When Jacob left from Laban, he took everyone with him. So there is a format of redemption where everyone makes it out. But there can also be a great loss. As we mentioned, change is difficult, and change, redemption, demands self-sacrifice. For the Exodus, the nation had to circumcise and had to offer the pastoral offering. And the sheep, the lambs that were deified in Egypt had to be slaughtered. And the Jewish people were idolaters like their Egyptian neighbors. And they had to slaughter their deities and roast them on a spit so everyone can smell it and smear the blood on the doorposts. They had to publicly repudiate their deities. And they had to enter the desert without provisions. There was a a leap of faith that was required for the Exodus to happen. This is part of the Messiah story. There are miracles, grand miracles, plagues that have the power to transform everyone and everything. But the people are going to need to buy in. They're going to need to opt in. Now, after the Exodus, there was another miracle that we mentioned already in the past. Last time we talked about how Moshe had to gather the nation from amidst the whole land of Egypt. That's, of course, a great miracle. That's going to happen on a global scale with Messiah. And just as there was the splitting of the sea in the Exodus, the verse in Isaiah chapter 11 tells us there will be a splitting of the sea with Messiah. And just as after the Exodus, the nation had an encounter with Amalek, the last foe is Amalek. The chair of God, the throne of God is not complete until Amalek has been trounced. And the Jewish people, when they leave, they go into a desert and they stop in 42 different stations along the way. After Messiah, this as well, this pattern, we are told in the sources, will continue. There will have to be some sort of Sojourn throughout a wilderness and stations, maybe even 42 stations before this process is concluded. And what happened after, after the Exodus? The nation went to Sinai and they heard the chauffeur. That chauffeur will reappear with Messiah. The minister tells us that the ram that Abraham supplanted Isaac with during the binding of Isaac, the right and left shofars, horns, one of them, the left one, was blown at Sinai. And the other one, the right one, the larger one, will be blown with Messiah. The Zohar tells us, That there is going to be a difference between the Exodus and Messiah. With the Exodus, the leader of the redemption, Moshe, didn't make it to the finish line. He didn't get to consummate what he had started. After 40 years, right on the doorstep of Canaan, Moshe passed. And our Sages talk about what would have happened had Moshe led the conquest of Canaan. He would have been the Messiah. This time, we're told, Messiah, whose soul, by the way, emanates from Moshe, he will lead the nation, not just through the wilderness, not just through the various stages of redemption, that mirror that resemble the Exodus. He will finish the job. The verse that we quoted a few times, Micah, chapter 7, just as, similar to the Exodus, not completely mirroring, similar. There are going to be differences. Moshe was not able to finish the redemption Messiah will. This idea, of course, is very fundamental to our understanding of Messiah in general, but it's also very illuminating to our question. We were pondering, Messiah is a time that is going to consist of tremendous change, dramatic change, ubiquitous change. The whole world will come to recognize God and his people. And we wondered, how is that going to happen How will everyone be so thoroughly and permanently elevated by Messiah? And we gave a few answers, of course. But here's another answer. That same question can be asked about the Exodus. Jewish people in Egypt, they were spiritually indistinguishable from their idolatrous neighbors. And somehow... Through this process of a year in Egypt, with all kinds of miracles, with a very dramatic exodus, splitting of the sea seven days later, war with Amalek, eating manna, and very, very quickly, the nation is worthy to coalesce at the foot of the mountain and to experience prophecy. How did that happen? That is the power of the exodus. That is the power of redemption. And that is the power of Messiah. When we study the Exodus, we see the importance of these miracles. Messiah will likewise be a time where grand miracles, even greater miracles than those of the Exodus, they are going to change everything. I want to end with one final point. When will these miracles happen? The Rabbim tells us, he's he's adamant about this. King Messiah does not need to do miracles. He doesn't need to revive the dead. He doesn't need to do anything that suspends the rules of nature. Evidently, miracles are not, are not, not part of the process. Yet, scripture is clear That there will be miracles during Messiah, akin and even greater to those of the Exodus. Will the time of Messiah be characterized by miracles or not? So here's my theory there is a name that we're told that is the name of the miracles and the wars of Messiah. We'll talk more about this, please, God, at great length. That's the war of Gog and Magog. This apocalyptic war of Gog and Magog. And these miracles, the miracles of Gog and Magog, the miracles of Messiah, they are the miracles that will outshine, that will outweigh that will be greater than the miracles of the Exodus. When will this war happen? Is it before the arrival of Messiah? Or is it afterwards? So the Ramam tells us very explicitly, and he mentions this twice in his letter to the Yemenite Jewry, he mentions this also as well, in the sources that we've seen, Messiah will come first. And then the war of Gog and Magdor will happen. So it seems to me that the beginning of the messianic era and transformation, it's not going to be just something that happens overnight, even though there are elements of it that will happen overnight. The beginning of Messiah will be miracle-less. But the end will contain miracles even greater than that of the Exodus. My grandfather, of blessed memory, pointed out that when we talk about Messiah, we mentioned this in the past. There is a prayer that we say every day when we're hoping for Messiah. To fix the world with the kingdom of God. But the name of God that's used in that prayer. Is Shakai. That name of God we know signifies no miracles. Chapter 6 of Exodus, the beginning of Parsha's Ve'era, God appears to Abraham and says, I have appeared to your forefathers, Abraham and Jacob, with the name of Kel Shakai. But the other name of God the Tetragrammaton. In that name, I did not appear to them. So if the, the Messiah, it's to fix the world of the kingdom of God, that's the name that's, that's referenced. That's the name where there are no miracles. So my grandfather pointed out that, well, apparently Messiah is a time of no miracles. But maybe we can suggest. You got to read all the way to the end of the Elinu prayer. Bayomahu! on that day, Yihye Hashem Echad, God, this time using not the name Shakai, but using the name of the four-letter, ineffable name, the Tetragrammaton. God will be one, and his name will be one. That name that symbolizes total revelation. That was my theory. And then I found... That the Zohar says it explicitly. It's going to start off with a king. And he's going to begin a process. And it's going to gather the Jews back together. And from that day on, there's going to be a certain point after which, going forward, The miracles of Egypt will unfold, but it won't start with miracles. We have, I think, advanced a lot in our understanding of Messiah in this session. We learned about the template of Messiah, the template of redemption, and we also learned about the miracles of Messiah and the role that they will play in both changing us and changing the entire world. And this gives us another element, another aspect in trying to understand the mechanisms of Messiah. Next, we have to talk about us. Messiah will demand very substantial change on our part. And of course, we talked about this already. Earlier, we're going to have to want to change, not to be part of that 80%. It's going to demand self-sacrifice just as it did with the Exodus. But the subject that we will please God cover next from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, the comprehensive repentance movement of Messiah. Messiah is inextricably linked and connected to the concept of repentance. Absent repentance, there is no Messiah. And repentance may in fact be the trigger that brings about the entire messianic transformation. I look forward to please covering that with y'all really soon. Your questions and your comments and your feedback are always appreciated. My email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.